0: Show.
1: Well, folks, welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. This is Lisa Anderson here with you, and it's always great to be here. Happy November to y'all. As we are officially in fall, you know that those of you, a couple months ago, I was giving you grief about pumpkin spice lattes and just way rushing the season, and I'm not okay with that. Now we can sit in it. I am okay with November being fall. So a little bit of what is coming up on the show so that you know what to expect. Later on for our inbox, we have one of our single- Listeners, who's wondering how do you balance being available to your family, especially when they need you or they have needs that you can meet? Um, Balancing that with the boundaries of taking care of yourself and making sure that you have margin in that space. Well, one of our counselors is going to give some advice on that. And then for our culture segment, our friend Dr. Mike Bechtel is back. This time he is here to share about how introverts can be successful at work. What can introverts be successful? I don't know. I'm an extrovert, so you're going to have to learn from him, and you will want to listen in because even if you're an extrovert, you can learn how to better love and support your introvert friends and, quite frankly, relate to them. Okay, here we are for our roundtable, and heads up, this is going to be a two-parter, and we have got a great group of folks in here. In fact, we had seeded this on social media, and some of you have already anticipated this program. This week and next week, we're going to have a conversation around holding to your convictions even when it's difficult, and especially in the workplace, in different fields where Christian convictions and the Christian faith is being challenged at a number of different levels, and so we have representatives from some of those sectors here to kind of share their own experience and give us some wisdom about how to walk this out and remain faithful to Jesus and remain encouraged, have courage in this space, and hopefully we can all do that together. And so I want to welcome my friends here. Um, We have got Dr. Christine Ryan. She is a good friend of mine. Some of you have heard her on the show before. So, Christine, welcome. Thank you. And actually, I just called you Christine Ryan. She's now Christine Snyder. Okay, so um, because she got married, and you know what? If you want to hear about that, you got to go back and hear that show because there's just more there. We can't even get into that today. But Christine Snyder is an OBGYN gyn in practice, and uh, so she's going to speak kind of from her experience in the medical field. Another doc, our good friend Carl Benzio. Carl, good to have you here.
2: Great to be with you, Lisa, and your listeners.
1: Carl is a psychiatrist, um, which, you know, I guess we can call that an... an MD. No, (laughs) I like giving him a hard time. Whoa. (laughs) I
2: thought this was a friendly table. I know, I know. (laughs) It's already hostile. We're We're used to it as (laughs)
1: psychiatrists. No, perfect. Um, My new friend, Jennifer, Jennifer Arthur, great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you. Um, Now working here in Colorado Springs in the nonprofit world, but formerly in the corporate world. I know you worked at Boeing, you worked at Amazon, you've been around and about, so a lot going on there. And then and last but not least, Jason DeLee is a uh, school administration, 24 years. Um, currently, give us kind of what your role is currently, Jason.
3: So currently I am serving as a uh, director of education for a small private school, but um, mm-hmm. I've been in administration and done everything from kindergarten through adult education.
1: Wow, that's wild. Okay, that's amazing. Okay, well, we're going to break it down. We're going to get right into this because like I said, we have two days to really solve everyone's problems in this space, you guys, so you're going to have to do it. Um, But first off, I want you to kind of just let's go around the table and give a little summary of your professional background and how some challenges have intersected with you in this space. Like where have you seen, um, whether it's been yourself personally, or you've just seen certain things be be raised out you know in your place of work things that have been presented to you what has it looked like as you have navigated the space of being a christian who is like okay i hold this some pretty firm convictions are those being challenged and in what context so jason why don't we begin with you
3: well if you watch uh, anything happening in uh, the news lately uh, there is a, a plethora of topics that are controversial and Often go against biblical practices and principles that are happening in the world of, of education, uh, especially coming from an administrative uh, background. Uh, as you can imagine, last few years everything from gender, sexual orientation, when and where and how students use the, the restroom, uh, to even to to what information is is shared with parents on mm-hmm. decisions that students want about their pronoun preferences. So. Uh, Yes, uh, dealing with all of those. But the the great thing is uh, we're called as believers to be in the world, not of the world. And uh, even though there's a lot of uh, policies and and laws that regulate what we can and can't do, and uh, education doesn't stop us from being able to to really share and show the love of Christ uh, through how we talk to people, how we share our story, and and just even conversations that happen kind of on the down low with both staff and students. Yeah, such a
1: good point. And I'm thinking as you're talking of like, you know, this is ancient history now, but when I was in school, and let's talk about grade school, I remember having this big like kind of class-wide sex ed kind of thing. And now at that point, they told parents about it and you could opt out. And of course, my mom wrote a note because she wasn't going to have anyone else telling me about sex. (laughs) I'm not sure she ever got around to it, but that's maybe a different show of like what she equipped me with, but she definitely wasn't going to have the California public schools do it. I could tell you that. So I, but I remember that option, but now it's becoming a lot hazier as far as like, what are parents being told? I was having a conversation with a friend yesterday about this. And so um, I think that's great. Thank you so much. Uh, Christine, how about you?
4: Well, I'm your friend, the OBGYN. so we can also talk after if okay. you need some help, <laughs> That
1: is true. Okay, good. That's good to know.
4: Um, so I, as I just mentioned, am an OBGYN and I have had um, moments of hostility come out throughout my career, including in residency. That um, The chief resident one year, when I was a lower level, stood up in front of the entire department at Grand Rounds and said, I never should have gone into this specialty if I was uh, pro-life. Hmm. And... No one in the department defended me. Um, mm. To even now, with Roe v. Wade being overturned, our national organization has swung very far to the left and almost in it with a vitriol toward anyone who has a difference of opinion or belief regarding abortion and its availability. I resigned from a position not long ago, and maybe we'll be able to get into this later in the show. Um, and now. Have just been told that my job will be taken away within the next year for this position and my unwillingness to participate in that. Mm-hmm. But then they also we also face all of the issues with transgenderism, and um, I'm working around people who are helping patients transition and um the issues with that and um, and gender and addressing people with different pronouns and how that plays out in the healthcare field as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's quite a diverse um, slate of stuff, so we're going to get into that for sure. Uh, Carl, how about you?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, as a psychiatrist, I think my field is the one that integrates faith and science probably the the most fluidly and easily, but yet, especially whenever I started, I'm 60 years old now, so back in the 80s, it didn't really integrate very much. It was very Jewish-led or atheist-led, so if you had... Uh, Christian beliefs, they didn't want you to bring that into the therapy process with your patients. Um, as I did at various times, I could use vocabulary that was scientific, but use biblical principles. That was appreciated, and we had great success. But when you started to push a little bit more of biblical uh, vocabulary and terminology, and then I would get shut down, whether it was in the ER or whether it was the adolescent units I was running. As um, she said about abortion, uh, physician-assisted suicide, there were certain issues that were significantly needed a biblical worldview to understand what is really healthy for people that then has progressed to same-sex attraction and um, gender confusion. So as I try to treat people over the years, uh, what science has shown is a good biblical grounding in how we approach these things is always best for the patients and the people around them. Um, But at once it was sort of a a conflict of um, ideologies of, well, what works best for the patient to now is becoming illegal in some states for you to practice with a biblical worldview. So I get calls from maybe once or twice a week from either medical students, psychology majors, people that are in residency or just graduated residency, and wondering, am I going to be able to practice as a psychiatrist in the behavioral health field and be able to integrate my faith into my everyday practice? Or am I going to be shut down and have to squelch or be silent about my faith? And I think a whole concept of moral injury is really coming into our space uh, because of the oppression that's happening with our right of conscience. Callie Shackelford at uh, Liberty First says that we actually have more religious rights now than we've ever had in our lifetime, but we just don't understand how to express them or how to consistently apply them.
1: Okay, interesting, mm-hmm. Jennifer. How about you? Many years in the corporate world and uh, in leadership as well. So, yes. Well,
5: um, compared to some of these, I feel like mine hasn't been as impactful. But you know, I had um, I had a scenario where I was um, with a team traveling for negotiations um, for a contract. We were international and was kind of put in a. Uncomfortable, awkward position with um, a leader who, you know, it would be a he said, she said type thing, but definitely made me with my boundaries and my convictions feel kind of uncomfortable. Um, in the early days at Amazon, I dealt with freedom of speech and what that meant relative to things around, you know, how to build a bomb how do you get a child to come in on child pornography um you know just some things that to me felt like that's not freedom of speech and so you know dealt with some things like that but i would say most of my career has been more um nuanced i think um just dealing with things where you know people would wanna you know, adjust kind of how you present numbers because they wanted to be able to get someone to buy in and would be asking for investors. And to me, that was wrong because you needed to be straightforward. And so dealt more with some things like that or where I would be told, do not bring this up. And yet, to me, that was an important thing that needed to be disclosed for consideration. Um, And I think the other piece definitely, you know, as I progressed through my career, just cultural changes that we saw, um, there was more... um, I guess maybe just kind of at times it just felt like an aggression against Christians where it wasn't necessarily that I was going to lose my job over the fact that I was, but just the environment that I was in and coming into meetings and the conversations dealing with, I would say that was probably some of the bigger challenges. Yeah,
1: It's so interesting you say that because I'm thinking back to my, you know, I've been here at Boundless for a while now, but my background's in journalism and PR. And so I was out at a big newspaper in Washington, D.C. for a while and at their magazine and remembered going into writers' meetings. And I was, despite the the bent of the publication even being somewhat conservative, I guess as people would say, I was the only Christian on the staff and I was called the church lady um, (laughs) and very I mean are you sure it wasn't the way you dressed? <laughs> it was it could have been. I mean who knows? It was, you know, it, two th- early 2000s and that was just a, a free for all. But anyway, I remember even editors, I mean cu- people were getting cussed out on the spot, people were getting fired on the spot. You would get challenged like I I remember one time a a short-lived fellow Christian staffer came in and pitched a story and the editor said um oh, yeah, you know, that would be a great story for African Weekly and just basically like shot her down. It was basically Mm. a um, supporting refugees that were coming out of Africa and whatever and just very derisive in terms Mm. of like caring for people in other cultures who were oppressed and whatnot. And so um, she and I actually did try to approach him. I mean, we're just young, you know, starting out and stuff. And so... It is weird. Some of it's more covert, some of it's overt and stuff. So I would like to know, you started, uh, all of you started touching on this, this idea of what has changed. Like, have you noticed a shift in conversations around certain things? Because, I mean, it seems like, you know, I graduated from college, started in the workforce, you know, and have been around a while. And it's kind of like what we say on other levels of like, everyone kind of used to, you could frame things about God in generalities, and everyone was kind of like, yeah, you know, God, you could use the same language. If you were in America, most people understood that like, Christian, whatever people think that means, you know, I often say here on the show, people who are from Texas, well, of course, I'm a Christian, I'm Texan, you know, or whatever, you could at least have a common language of what general thoughts and beliefs were. And now I feel like that is off the table. So what have you seen change in your profession as far as even the the language you can use, the, the references you can make uh, that really might, for some people, quite frankly, be triggering in a sense? Um, how have you seen that change in this space?
2: Well, I think that our society now is just really sensitive on so many levels that we, our resiliency to handle any negativity or um, you know, the old thing, sticks and toes will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. It seems like words hurt everybody so much, so we have to be very careful and parse every word that we say uh, because of the sensitivity. Um, and it started out with whatever fringe situation or with the lack of truth, just everything is relative. You get to do with right in your own eyes and everybody gets to determine what's right, so you can't um, conflict with somebody else's view of what's right. So tolerance was then the buzzword, but then everything is being tolerated except for the Christian viewpoint, it seems like. So when we talk about diversity or we talk about treating diversity, treating people and have cultural diversity when we treat people from all kinds of different backgrounds. My faith and diversity, we don't seem to bring, well, let's have an... Some expertise or some understanding of a Christian's culture or their diversity religiously or how they look at um, happiness or sadness or anxiety or fear or forgiveness. We're just going to block that out. We're not going to. We're going to reject all of that, but we're going to accept everybody else's and be tolerant to everybody else. Mm-hmm. And that's been a big change for me in in my space for over the, probably the last fifteen or twenty years. Yeah, I think
3: in in the world of education, you know, when I first started in late '90s, early 2000s there was still this concept of families are are integral into ensuring the educational services, the processes, the learning of, of students. And really over the past 20 years, you've seen this very quick shifting from, yeah, parents are a necessity to ensuring students are learning to now it's we don't want parents involved or we only want parents involved if they're supporting what we are trying to, you know, the... The buzzword now is indoctrinate our students. Um, but outside of that, we, we don't want parents uh, to know. Students need to be, start making their own choices. So mm-hmm. it's becoming this 180 swing of the pendulum to, yeah, parents, they're our enemy, and we need to do everything we can to separate them and isolate them from what we're doing. Whether you're talking about a, a Christian view or a worldview, kind of what you're talking about of uh, creating this my opinion, my ideas, my uh, ideologies are, are mine. And if you're against that or counter that, then uh, that's a bad thing. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to have dialogue and conversation about, about that.
1: It's interesting you bring that up because I was just in a conversation with a friend last night who has kids uh, here in school in the region and was talking about a a school nearby that has a – I think she called it like a gender-affirming closet of sorts where students can come in at the beginning of the school day and change clothes into their preferred gender if Mm. they want so that – their parents will not know about it. And it's entirely the school's intent that this provides a, quote unquote, safe space for students to express themselves and do it. If their parents would get upset with them, they can do it on the down low. So I don't know. (laughs) what's what's being done in that space or I know she said that there were fellow parents who were losing their minds about the the power and the influence that's being taken away from parents with their own kids yeah yeah
3: and and that's all the the fad and a lot of ways in education of uh, teachers putting you know whatever flag symbol somewhere in their room or next to the door identifying that this is a safe space for for students to go to so yeah, it's definitely changing.
4: Yeah, I'm still a little bit shocked at your use of the term indoctrinate. Yeah. That they actually call it that?
3: Well, and when you look at society, that's how we look at it, because it's trying to change a student's uh, trajectory or what they've learned from home. And in many cases, it's, yeah, your parents are wrong, your parents are, are teaching you the wrong things, or, oh, yeah, I, I want to affirm what your parents are teaching. Uh, you know, it's it's not as extreme as as people take that that word of indoctrination but it truly is trying to to modify thought processes it's, it's trying to change how students perceive things and again that's why i think we're seeing such violence that happens in just around us that everything turns into a fight whether mm-hmm. it's oral or whether it's physical everything becomes so combative because people are being trained, like, yeah, it's the wrong way of thinking, and, and we don't know how to to talk about things and talk about differences and realize that, you know what, we can't come to a common ground. Sometimes it's okay to think differently. Mm-hmm. but
1: Why, um, Christine, to that point on the abortion issue, why is it that you would say, because I see this as more of a cultural shift that's happened in your space, that Really, abortion has to be given as the primary option or the assumptive option for couples who are surprised by a pregnancy or feel that they can't, you know, go through with a pregnancy or whatever, and the pressure on you as a doctor to make that happen. to make. I, I feel like that's even showcased in medical dramas like on TV of just like it's very much these heroic doctors who are helping parents solve their quote-unquote problem through that. I don't know. Has that changed throughout your career? Do you feel there's more pressure in that space?
4: I think just as in the past it may have been more subversive or more behind closed doors, as in with teaching, there were people obviously 20 years ago that were attempting to indoctrinate kids in this direction. It's become more mainstream now, and with overturning Roe v.ers Wade, there has been a very liberal shift, and even more outspokenness on the on the side of pro abortion and and making that seem the norm, and that it should be taken casually, which, again, this is not my opinion. This is what is coming from the left, but that this this really should be brought up in the first conversation. And it's even swung to the point where um, medical literature that um, I read in obstetric and gynecology literature has, it's almost as though they're required to put that statement as an option for any sort of malformation in talking about um, management mm-hmm. and that this is always plugged in there in some point in every piece of literature at this point. Um, mm-hmm. There's also been a shift in our electronic medical record and in any any sort of um, documentation in that now it does say at the top of almost every record what someone's pronouns are, what their sexuality is, and which is uh, hard when you you know you only take care of XX people, mm-hmm. <laughs> And as an OBGYN, I've never had to or been forced to take care of men or XY individuals. And that's still something I specify because, again, in my clinic, they do take care of transgender people. And so I have specified that I only care for XX individuals and that I don't have that other specialization. Mm -hmm. And at this point, that's still acceptable to not have that other specialization Mm -hmm. (laughs) for lack of a better description Mm -hmm. that that's an acceptable thing but there's more coming down the pike Mm -hmm. and I imagine this will be something that will become a hot topic or will be something that we're struggling against 10 years from now too
1: yeah yeah um, Jennifer, I was going to ask you, because just talking about the how have things shifted, it seems to me, too, an observation in the corporate world is, you know, if we go back to, like, our grandparents who just worked jobs, and you showed up and you worked, you know, your nine to five, and your work life was separate from your personal life, now there's much more of a blend. And now you bring your whole person into the workplace, and even, you know, very iconic decisions around, like, Google and Apple and stuff that are having, like, full-on, like, you know pet daycare at work and you're <laughs> you're just you know you're just living your best life you know as part of the job which probably assumptively is going to be 50 to 60 to more hours mm-hmm. per week or whatever yeah. are are there shifts that you've seen in that as far as people just feeling like they're going to share more of their personal proclivities or opinions or whatever on the job in that space
5: absolutely well in some ways i think um it was interesting transitioning from Boeing you know, older corporate, you know, people talked about their family, but it was much more almost like yeah, that traditional. Uh, we're going to barbecue this <laughs> exactly. Saturday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then going to Amazon where, you know, I started there in 1999, and it was a lot of young people. I mean, even at the time, I think Jeff Bezos was in his 30s, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was, it almost brought that in much faster, I think, than maybe you'd see in other kind of corporations because we had dogs from the (laughs) get-go um and but i remember i think a month after i started they made the announcement of how now amazon's insurance supports partners and so you know and there were you know several people who um Gay and they um, actually one of them had come from Disney and he was like, "Oh, I'm so excited because we had this at Disney and I've been really rallying for it at Amazon." So that was kind of an introduction. Where it was like, "Okay, why are we getting into like the, these details even from corporate decisions?" Um, but definitely more and more, I think one other piece I saw, um, we actually jokingly called him the mayor of Amazon. But again, being a younger company, um, you know they would throw parties and. I guess this was an area where I drew the line, like I would go, I'd hang out with everyone, but then I knew there was like the witching hour and I was out every single time. And then you'd come in on Monday and hear of way more details than I would ever want to know about people and who hooked up with who and who did this thing or that thing. And it just, to me, that felt like such a shock that like, these are people you have to come and work with. And Mm you're like kind of letting this side in and you're opening it up. And so I feel like I saw it a little bit earlier, but definitely as time went on, much more detail, you know, where people share very intimate details um, about their life, about their choices and things that just to me feels like it's a compromise Mm -hmm. on a boundary. And I've just always kept like, yeah, I'll tell you about my kids, I'll I'll Mm -hmm. do the Boeing. (laughs) Thing, but it did feel like it moved a little bit faster mm-hmm. probably at Amazon because we were so young when I started there yeah oh, great
1: point All right, well, we are going to take a pause. You guys, we are out of time for this week, but I want to let folks know, as I said at the beginning, that we're going to continue this conversation next week. So you have to pop back and get the rest of this. We're going to get into just straight up, like expressing your faith in the workplace. Like, is that even possible? We're going to talk about like when it takes courage to actually say something or even to walk away if you have to, Uh, especially when you are in a position of leadership. How do you represent leadership? Well, um, I'm sidying Jason over here, like, mm, you better have something to say about that. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, we're going to get into all of that next week. And so, if, if, or I should say, if y'all are willing to join us next week, are you willing to come back for that? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey. All right. Thanks so much.
0: All day in a London cab, her phone rings. But I can tell the news is bad before the first tear falls. No one. The sorrow a call like this brings Sorrow doesn't get the last word after all
1: Well, folks, uh, we are here for our culture segment, welcoming back. In fact, I was looking, John Pearden, you know, he always does a a fun and feisty prep for me, which usually introduces me to our guests if they're brand new. But this time around, um, our guest, Mike Bechtel, has been on our show about, I don't know, it's about 75 times, I feel like. Oh, no, wait a minute. No, it's like uh, one, two, three, four, seven times. Look at you. Wow. You're practical. You might be starting to set a record here for culture guests. We don't just let anyone back, Mike. I just want you to know that. I so, appreciate that. That is, <laughs> It's very exciting to have you here. And uh, you often come out here, which is also exciting for us, because then we get to be in studio, we get to lay eyes on you, and for those of you who've heard Mike in the past, he's also an actual Boundless Show listener, so we do appreciate that. So we always get to kind of review shows with him and talk about stuff when he's in town, so um, definitely a warm welcome. Thanks, Mike. Okay, well, we are talking about uh, one of his newest books, in fact, pretty much almost hot off the presses at this point. And I don't even know that I knew, okay, the title of it is The Introvert's Guide to Success in the Workplace. So a lot of you, about 50% of you, your ears just perked up, because I think it's an almost even split, isn't it, Mike?
6: Introverts, Mm -hmm. say Between 30 and 50, but some in between.
1: Okay. It's just that we often don't, the extroverts are, you know, more vocal and kind of jockeying for (laughs) physicians. So we hear from them more often, but you are an introvert. Mm -hmm. See, I just think you're so social and relational and whatever. And that's going to play into what our conversation is going to delineate here about some of the myths even around introverts. So The Introvert's Guide to Success in the Workplace, Becoming Confident in a Culture of Extroverted Expectations. And so we're just going to start breaking it down. Many of you know um, that Mike used to work for Franklin Covey, and he's a speaker and author. Again, we've had him on the show multiple times. Um, He has his master's from Biola and a doctorate from Arizona State. What's your doctorate in again?
6: Higher and adult education. Oh, my goodness.
1: That's very fancy.
6: Which has nothing to do with what I (laughs) did for a career, but it was okay.
1: (laughs) Well, that's okay. You could teach us something today, though, so this will be great. So, okay, I'm going to be honest here. So, I'm I'm an extrovert. I test as an extrovert, and people... When I say, though, that I'm actually borderline, a lot of people can't believe it because they think because I talk so much, because I host a show, they just think like, oh, my goodness, you must just love being so extroverted all the time. And I say, no, I'm really on the border because I tend to get energy from being alone. It's just that I don't need a lot of that time. Then I have a long tail. But I would say, yeah, I'm pretty pretty borderline. I have friends who are like off the charts extroverts and I can barely handle (laughs) them pretty regularly but for a true introvert I know that the struggle um, must be real and so okay so let's talk about first of all because you have experience Mike what are some of the very real challenges of introverts in the workplace so give us a couple examples because I think a lot of people are like well You know, surely you're going to, you know, go ahead and make it work. There are places for introverts. There's stuff for you to do. You guys are just grumbling. But what would you say give us just (laughs) to give us a reference point? Give us a couple of the things of like, oh, yeah, this is real. This is where we probably would be at a disadvantage if not played properly.
6: Well, I think a lot of it comes from the fact that where we get our energy Uh and how we use that, because... That's the biggest difference between introverts and extroverts. We both need energy, and we get it from different places. Usually, introverts get it by being alone. I do well in a crowd. I love being around people, and just like you do, but we need to pull away to recharge. Mm -hmm. Extroverts... That are people that are more on the extroverted side, they need to be around people to recharge. Mm-hmm. So they'll be in meetings all day long. And at the end of the day, they want to go out with friends <laughs> just so they can keep the energy going. Mm-hmm. And introverts, a lot of times during events, they will go to the bathroom three or four times just to have a few minutes to recharge. And it's valid. But I think in a work setting, a lot of times you get things all the way from the interview. People say, well, make sure you're outgoing and make sure that you're Mm -hmm. gregarious and and you come across like you're really um, engaged. Mm -hmm. It's like, but that may not be your personality because extroverts think quickly and introverts think deeply. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think of the perfect response to somebody like three or four minutes after they've left. Mm
1: -hmm. It's like, oh, I
6: should have said this, should have said this because I'm processing. So you put that into a work environment where the expectation is you're getting a performance evaluation and they say, okay, you need to be more engaged in our meetings. You need to talk more. Mm-hmm. You need to to be more outgoing. And it's like, but that's not where my strengths are. Yeah. I can do that, but then I'm pretending to be something I'm not. And so the expectations of that, other people thinking, well, if you're a team player, then you're going to be more engaged in that. They do a lot of teamwork. They have open environments where let's get everybody in the same room so there's more collaboration, Mm -hmm. which is a death knell for an introvert because Mm -hmm. they'd rather go into a room by themselves for a while and just think, process, and then come back. So they have the skills, but they need that time to be able to process. It's an extroverted-flavored society in a work environment.
1: Yeah. Well, and definitely it seems like extroverts are much more the verbal processors. So like you Mm -hmm. said, they can win at work when you're supposed to be in this, you know, let's all be team players. Let's go in the room. We're going to hit. In fact, I did this one time, and it's funny to me because, like I said, I'm not truly a, a true extrovert, but I think I do... I ideate pretty quickly. And so I remember with my team just saying, okay, well you know, hey, in 30 minutes, let's just go into this conference room. We just need to, we need to brainstorm this idea. My introvert employees are like freaking out because they're like, what am I going to bring to the table? I can't just go there and like come up with stuff and everything. And so I remembered that and have since then said, next week, we're all going to have a meeting where we go and we start thinking of ideas for this. And then they come with their notes, you know, and they've thought it through and it, it ends up working. Well,
6: I used to do the same thing because I'd go into meetings and there were those conversations, those expectations. And it's like, well, let's just talk through it and come up with ideas. And I just listen. And people think I'm not engaged or they think, well, I'm not interested or I'm I'm bored. It's like, no, I'm listening deeply. And then I will leave and think through it. And I'm going to come back with the best ideas you've ever heard. Yeah. But I have to do it in my head. I can't do it out loud.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. So I really like um, in the book, you give an illustration of what it's like for an introvert to have to adapt to an extrovert to an extrovert's world and you kind of use this scuba example walk us through that because i think that's really helpful of like the actual challenge that so many introverts face
6: well if i want to go scuba diving to see what it's like underwater i can't i'm not a fish Mm -hmm. so i can't breathe underwater i have to take some apparatus to be able to do it And I can make that work. So I have the tank, I have the the goggles and and the hoses and everything else. And that allows me to be in that environment. But I can't be there forever because that's not who I am. Who I am is someone who breathes on land. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to come back, that's why I need to get what I need and then visit the extrovert world and I can function really well in it. And then I'm exhausted and can't form multi-syllable words for about an hour afterwards, but to be able to go back in there. So I can visit that environment. I can, I can be in it. And I think introverts can thrive in an extroverted world with all the energy going on just to realize though, that energy is our lifeline. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to get the rest to pull away, even for a few minutes, To recognize that I can't have meeting after meeting after meeting, Um, I need to. If I have three meetings in a row, or three conversations, or I'm on the phone, or especially on uh, Zoom or a virtual call for two or three hours, and then I have uh, an hour free, I need to block off that hour. Mm -hmm. And. If somebody says, I need to see you after the meeting, I say, Well, I'm I already have a commitment at that time. I don't say what it is. Mm-hmm. I blocked it off for me because <laughs> I know I if I don't recharge, I run out of gas and I can't do
1: anything. So. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, and, and so helpful. And I think like when we started talking, we talked about the, the scuba analogy is really helpful in understanding that. We started out by talking about how, you know, there are real challenges in the workplace because so many, you know, you'll see a lot of CEOs tend, can tend to be extroverts, and they've made it to the top very much usually because of talking their way to the top or, I don't know, arm wrestling or something like that. Um, but there are a number of, even on any level within a workplace, whether it's corporate or whatever, disadvantages or or perceptions that people have about introverts that I think are really helpful to delineate here. And one of the ones you talk about in the book is that just straight up that introverts don't like people. And I think that's probably levied by extroverts, you know, of like, well, you know, the problem is you're just kind of like unfriendly or we need to meet with the client. So don't be unfriendly. And that but talk about why that is a misperception And really what introverts can do to win in that space, harnessing the power of their own personality.
6: One of the best ways that they can um, function well in that setting is to recognize that it is an extrovert environment. I need to to build those skills. Mm -hmm. I need to learn. I can't just be myself and be quiet. And if somebody says I need to be more outgoing and I need to engage and you just don't like people, I probably like people better than the extroverts do. Because... I will take one person and go deep with them. Mm -hmm. You go to a social event, an extrovert wants to go in and say, how long will it take me to talk to everybody in the room? Mm -hmm. And an introvert will go in and say, who are the two people I'll spend the evening with and then I'll leave early? Mm -hmm. And they have a wonderful time because they got some depth. Mm -hmm. They love being with people. And Mm -hmm. most introverts feel that way, Mm -hmm. but it's in a smaller dose and they need to recharge a little quicker, mm-hmm. but I that doesn't excuse. I can't use that as an excuse for not learning how to to work in an extrovert world. I can build skills. It's almost like being bilingual. Mm-hmm. I always say uh, we need to learn how to speak extrovert, mm-hmm. and the reason is because if I speak to somebody in their language, they're going to be much more receptive than if I'm trying to get them to speak my language. And so with an extrovert. I need to learn how do you live in that world? How do you communicate in that sales call, in those settings? Because if I can do that, now I'm performing well, and it's not my natural band. I I know I just need to charge up ahead of time, so I've got the gas to do it, mm-hmm. to be able to fit in there.
1: Yeah. Another thing you kind of call out is the fact that, Uh, introverts are often dinged for being poor networkers and like to that point you said you know it's, it's so funny how so many networking events are these Mixers or, you know, cocktail hours or whatever. And it's like when I used to be in journalism and, you know, slash politics, some, they always called it the grip and grin of you're going to go, you're (laughs) going to shake someone's hand, your smile. You usually have to take a photo with people. It's going to have to show up in the trade magazine or something like that. And it's just exhausting for introverts. But talk a little bit about what what that looks like to invest in a couple people and why quality might be better than quantity in that sense. Because I think so many, especially those listening, Mike, young adults, they're working at a double disadvantage because they might be an introvert. And then they're also low on the totem pole at work. So no one's coming to seek them out and try to get to know them. (laughs) They're all going for the power players. So how can they win in that space, harnessing that and kind of realizing, like, maybe I do need to focus on just a few.
6: And I think that's one of the best ways to do it is to recognize that if I'm low on the totem pole and I don't have people coming to me, I don't have to go out and be an extrovert and do that with everyone. Mm -hmm. But if I can find one person I can connect with this week Mm -hmm. and just find out about them, build a little relationship. And it's not hard to take the initiative with another introvert because they're waiting for you to come to them. Mm -hmm. And so they welcome it, have a conversation and then follow up on it. Like a week later, say, hey, you said your daughter was going to be in that in that play at mm-hmm. school. How did that go? Yeah. And it, it means a lot to them that you were able to remember that. Same thing, though, with extroverts, is that I can do that with an extrovert. And they're so used to just talking back and forth that if I hear them say something about their family or whatever, and then I come back and say, hey, how'd your daughter do in that play? It It's unusual for them. They don't hear it as much mm-hmm. because it's usually whatever's current. So I can build those kind of small relationships they're real relationships Mm -hmm. and not that the extrovert ones ones aren't but networking has such a bad connotation for introverts because you're trading business cards that you're never going to do anything with like Mm -hmm. you said Mm -hmm. the smiling (laughs) the grip and grin and to be able to just go into those kind of settings not saying I don't have to meet everybody if I can meet one person and we can just connect I have networked Mm -hmm. at a level that works for me Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking about misconceptions about introverts in the workplace. And we talked about they don't like people. They're bad at networking. Uh, One other, and you actually have a few others. So we're going to have to make sure, y'all, that you know the book is available, The Introvert's Guide to Success in the Workplace. But let's talk, Mike, about introverts just don't make good leaders. So (laughs) because... If you're not out, you know, working the crowd or doing whatever, or telling people all your ideas or shuffling your way to the top, what does it look like, again, to be an introvert and truly lead, especially working your way up, you know, into what many of our young adults would like to see as a successful place within their industry?
6: Well, you kind of alluded to it earlier that about 97% of of top leaders, CEOs, Uh, C-suite people tend to be extroverted, but there's that assumption that, okay, well, they got there because they were extroverted. But really what a leader does, it's different than a manager. A manager comes up with a plan, tells people what to do, and gets them to do it and tries to motivate them and everything else. But a leader um, is leading someone, which means... They're going first, and they're getting people to volunteer to follow them. Mm-hmm. And so an introvert, it's almost a specialty for them to be able to build trust with people and to build the kind of relationships where people want to do things, not because you told them how to do it, but because they're so motivated by you and what you're doing. They want to be on the same team. They want to work their way up. So you do that at the lowest level. And if the way I operate is building those small relationships building trust but I just that's just the the way i do it period it's not as a a plan that i've come up with it's just when that becomes my pattern my default setting then you're doing it you're leading a few people because you're helping them get better mm-hmm. and i think that's what a, a good leader does is people are better because they've been with them so i would say i have seen introverts being some of the strongest leaders i know even to the ceo level because they're coming from a point of, I care so deeply about the people, but they also have the skills and the mindset to be able to run an organization. Hmm.
1: One of the things that I think is so helpful about what you put in the book is the things that we actually can grow in. So very, you know, we can't change our personality, we can't change our makeup and how this plays out, but there are definite areas that we can grow in. And one of them you talk about is emotional intelligence. And that's something so many people, whether in the business world or elsewhere, are talking about mostly because we feel like everyone else doesn't have it. (laughs) And we've been in environments where we're like, that was really bad or that crashed and or why is my boss X Y Z whatever? Um, hey team, like don't think that about me, okay? Um, anyway, they're they're out there looking at me. But um, let's let's talk about what how emotional intelligence kind of or the lack of it shows up in a working team and what it looks like to actually put some legs on it and go after growth
6: in that area in a way that someone can um, really see results in a business setting where I see it happen a lot, the lack of emotional intelligence is in Zoom calls Mm -hmm. and sometimes in team meetings where someone will make a comment and somebody else responds and says, that was really good, and maybe in the chat they'll make a comment, great comment. And I know the people and I thought, that person doesn't even like this person. Mm -hmm. It's like we've gotten into something where you have to affirm other people in that environment and it it almost doesn't seem real. Mm -hmm. It's like, it feels more like flattery than actually trying to build somebody up. And as an introvert, to be able to be in those kinds of settings, to sense there are people here that they're playing this game of positioning themselves. And I want to be seen as the one that encourages people Mm -hmm. and things like that, whether it's genuine or not. An introvert, it's going to be genuine. Mm -hmm. And that gives them a chance to just care about other people. Emotional intelligence means that I... Can I'm paying enough attention to you and I really care about you enough that I want to know what you're thinking? Mm -hmm. Um, I won't just ask you a question, I'll ask you a second question to follow it up because I'm interested, I'm curious, Mm -hmm. and then I'll follow up on it later. Like we mentioned earlier, it's like it's just empathy, Mm -hmm. it's caring about somebody and looking through being able to look through somebody else's lenses and being intentional about it Mm -hmm. instead of just putting my position out, somebody else puts theirs out. That's what makes the difference. And introverts can do that really well naturally.
1: Yeah, and I think so much you know, with the extroverts taking energy from other people kind of and feeding on that, I think introverts do have the chance to become that trusted confidant or the person that's your go-to person or the person that's like, okay, of everyone in this meeting, there are probably two people who actually remember what was decided. So let's go to the <laughs> It kind of like sets you up as like, the person, the source, kind of, of a fair amount of information, which well, I think would be Well, good. and
6: also in those kind of meetings, um, you feel like, well, I, I, they tell me I need to talk more. Mm-hmm. Well, I've learned that if I can get an agenda for a meeting ahead of time, Then I can look through and see, and nobody reads the agenda. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But if I go through it and say, okay, I know a little bit about this. Here's one comment I could make. Mm -hmm. And then I try and make that comment as early as possible when the discussion starts. So I'm done. Yeah. (laughs) And also people remember the first thing that was said. Mm -hmm. Then people recognize he contributes something in every meeting. Mm -hmm. Or... At the lack of that, I can always ask a question. Mm -hmm. For an introvert, that's their best tool to be visible in meetings, Mm -hmm. is just take one meaningful question, say, well, we talked about this, how do you think the client's gonna react if we do that? Mm -hmm. And so it gets people thinking, it gets them talking, and you're the one that was the catalyst. And so you get a reputation for being the person who asks really good questions Mm -hmm. in the meetings. And all it takes is one question or one comment, and it's real. Mm
1: Yeah, that's good. That's great. I hope folks are writing this down, you know, and we'll let you know about the book, too. Okay, kind of as we as we finish out here, you also talk a lot about feedback and the value of feedback. How let's talk about asking for feedback as an introvert, because I feel like, you know, introverts, they probably already done a fair amount of (laughs) self-assessment. But what, for example, would be a great tactic for them to go and ask feedback of their extroverted boss in a way that kind of, again, I feel like sometimes again, bosses can turn and make it about themselves and you're like, well, I actually want to get feedback. So what's a good strategy there?
6: You know, I, probably the biggest thing is to ask for something specific Okay. instead of saying, can you give me feedback on how I'm doing? Mm -hmm. Well, that's pretty generic and they'll think of something, Yeah. but to be able to say, I'm going to be in the next meeting, I'm presenting on this topic for about 10 minutes. And I'm really trying to make sure that I connect well with people Could you just watch with that in mind? And then afterwards, can I have a few minutes and just tell me what you see that I'm doing well, what I can do to improve? So it's really specific on a specific thing. Mm -hmm. Because that way a boss isn't going to, they feel like they have to give feedback. They're the boss. So they'll come up with something. But then the same thing goes downward. If you have a team and you're the boss. You, my, um, I knew one person that did that, and they said, um, "Just, I, I really want your feedback. Just tell me what you're thinking." And nobody gave them feedback. Hmm. I said, "Well, you're the boss. They're not going to tell you that <laughs> right. you're you're a schmuck and you're messing up on everything. Yeah. Um, just ask for something specific." Okay. In that meeting we had last week, we talked about this. Did I push my agenda too hard? Or did I give you guys a chance to really say anything? Mm -hmm. So a really specific question, it makes feedback, it makes it safe for people to give feedback, whether it's a boss or other people.
1: Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, and I think there's a lot here that is helpful even for extroverts to understand the flip side of that. So yeah, as the introverts, as you're going to win as a team or win with your employees, you know, this is very helpful for you to take note of, because again, not everyone is like you, y'all. So pay attention. Well, Mike, always super interesting and just great. Uh, We want to remind you guys, because I did tell you this... this book, The Introvert's Guide to Success in the Workplace Becoming Confident in a Culture of Extroverted Expectations, is available this week from Boundless for a gift of any amount. So just go to boundless.org, search 822 this week's episode. Uh, you'll click on the book cover there. You give a gift to Boundless, and we'll send you a copy of Mike's book. Um, you know, introverts, you've already written this down. Extroverts, like I said, you should get this too and uh, learn about the introverts in your life. So you you can make that happen. And Mike, thanks again for weighing in on this. Super helpful. It's
6: okay. always a privilege.
0: 24 hours rushing past to get caught up and I move too fast. Another day is spent working hard to keep my pace, trying to win the human race. But somehow I forget that you're in control of all this mess. You got the whole world in your hands got the whole wide world in your hands and every little thing is under your command so I will trust your plans you've got the whole
1: Well, folks, as we finish out the show, we are opening up our inbox and we have got the fantastic Linda Miller with us. Hey, Linda. Hey, Lisa. Good to have you. She is one of our counselors here at Boundless and Focus on the Family. All right, I'm going to jump in and just get into this question right away. Our listener says, as a single adult living at home, how do you balance being available to help your family and spending time on your own goals and friendships? I have a hard time knowing when to prioritize my projects or friendships over being around to help my family with house projects or babysitting.
7: Okay. First of all, I want to congratulate the listener for where they are in life. I mean, they've achieved and they are pursuing their goals. They also have said that like family is really important to them. But it sounds like the tension that they're wrestling with is a result of that wanting to honor their family, honor herself, her goals, those relationships outside of the home. And the struggle is indeed trying to hold that all in tension. So there's a couple things I want her to consider or him. Um, communication is the key. It sounds like it is time to have kind of those difficult conversations the ones that are adult to adult with her folks, acknowledging that things have changed and they are changing in their relationship. I mean, you're always somebody's child, but you're also now a peer. It's adult to adult. And that takes a little time for everybody to adjust to. So I would recommend like setting a time aside to sit down and talk about those expectations Um, I think it'd be helpful to look inward and ask yourself some of those tough questions. Like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I getting a sense of value or worth by meeting the needs of others? Or am I helping out because of a sense of guilt or obligation? Um, Secondly, I think it's kind of showing appreciation for your parents and how they've helped or are helping you at this time. And this is uh, where tough love may need to be enacted here. But let me define tough love, because I think it's often misunderstood. It Tough love doesn't mean that you don't care. It just means that you won't allow your love to be used against you. And so talk about the structure with your parents. And that said, there certainly needs to be some kind of give and take to have a conversation that outlines the things that are expected of one another. Like, are you paying rent? Do you help out around the house? If so, how many hours for your help? Um, Have a bi-weekly, a weekly, a monthly meeting with them so that things can be discussed. When can you help? Is it the same time every week that you meet? Or maybe the same time you help every week. Um, Create a structure. Identify those things that in the times that you have availability for, um, to find out what their requests are and how you can help, help them. But don't put pressure on yourself in the moment to make a commitment if they're asking you to, you know, babysit at a certain time or do this house project. Um, give yourself the permission to look at those things that are important to you, um, and to take those into factor those into the equation. Um, the last thing I don't know about you, but I start that negative thinking sometimes and the toxic thinking. So it's important to replace those negative thoughts. Like they're taking advantage of me or um, they wouldn't do this to someone else. You know, those kind of things that we, the old tapes that kind of play in our, our minds. Um, So sometimes we get caught in a trap of lies and the enemy has a way of doing that to us. I mean, he is out to kill, devour, and destroy John 10, 10, right? But what would God do? want you to say in this moment what would he want to say to you in your heart to bring out in you are you becoming bitter are you becoming better in that situation and how can you turn that around Um, remember it's not your responsibility to fix someone else's mistakes or problems or to feel guilty if you can't meet that need Uh, your heart is good. I can tell you love deeply and that you care for yourself in this process is so important. Don't hesitate to speak to someone. Find a mentor who can walk with you through this or a counselor can help you process all those things that are going internally because it sounds like you're really at a point of change and moving forward. And that's exciting.
1: Yeah. Yeah, great thoughts. Well, thank you so much for weighing in on that, Linda. We appreciate it. All right, folks, that is it for this week's show. Um, We do want to hear from you, maybe with your questions for the future. So you can write to us at editor at boundless.org, or just hit us up in the DMs on Facebook or Instagram and ask your question there. We might tackle it on a future show. In the meantime, I'll see you around next week. It's Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of boundless.org from Focus on the
7: Family. God wants true disciples, ones that think like him, talk like him, walk like him. Disciples that bring shalom to the chaos of this world. Pursue that path with the RVL Discipleship series. Bible scholar Ray Vanderlaan will give you the tools to understand the Bible more deeply and inspire you to be a passionate follower of Christ. Watch the first episode at rvldiscipleship.com.